0: Hello, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host Sean Sheatham, and today we have a special guest with us, uh, Brandon Adams, joining us from uh, the left coast today in Washington State um, to discuss covenant theology. Uh, Brandon, thank you for joining us today. appreciate
1: it. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah.
0: Um, So today we have a pretty packed episode, and Sean is going to introduce our topic today as we begin our discussion.
2: Yeah. So longtime listeners of the podcast will remember that we, uh, did a response to the reform forum, uh, last year. Uh, they had, uh, reform forum had on a uh, pastor, uh, Boothy and, uh, they went through uh covenant theology in the book of Hebrews. So they've actually done a, a follow up episode to that, uh, episode that we responded to. And they specifically addressed 69, 1689 federalism, which we hold to. Um, so we felt that, um, we would uh, respond to that now that it's uh, specifically addressed at uh, something we hold to. And uh, it was a very amicable video, and uh, hopefully we, in the same spirit, are very amicable towards them, but uh, we did uh, feel the need to respond.
0: Yeah, and and I hope that today we can have a, a charitable conversation with our Presbyterian Brother. We love our Presbyterian Brother, but this is a A distinctive that we think is important. And even for our particular Baptist forefathers, it was one that they thought was important too, and that needed to be discussed. Um, So with that, Brandon, do you want to start us into our topic today about covenant theology?
1: Yeah, you bet. So there's a very important quote um, from Sam Ranahan in his book, uh, The Mystery of Christ, His Covenant, and His Kingdom. Um, He says towards the beginning, when one considers the grand scope of covenant theology, the precision of its distinctions and the balance of its continuity and discontinuity, the teacher writer and student of covenant theology and people discussing it on a podcast should pause and hesitate long before continuing. Each one of us should pray earnestly and humbly for the spirit's help to have the wisdom necessary to understand the depth of the riches of God's eternal purposes in light of the humility that covenant theology ought to instill in its students. The way in which believers have turned it into a battlefield is unacceptable when the revelation and explanation of the mystery of Christ becomes a source of aggression and division between brethren, a diligent self-examination and repentance is an order for all parties involved. The mystery of Christ and his covenant is not a weapon of war means of mischief or source of schism. It is the gospel for the nations. It is union with God and communion with all his children in one Lord, one spirit, one baptism, one covenant. Um, So I, that speaks to me. Um, I have certainly not uh, always heeded that. i've I've been engaged in the topic for ten years or so in my own studies, and and I have failed miserably many times in in um, in, in not approaching it humbly. And so I just pray that god can uh, can humble all of us here in this discussion and and we can have a profitable discussion. Um, I have been listening to reform forum for years. I really appreciate the podcast. I often disagree with them but I uh, appreciate the way they go about it, the the scholarship and and care and precision. Um, I especially appreciate uh, Jeremy. I think it's Boothby with a B. Um, I I think Camden may have mistyped it in one of the descriptions. Um, I I emailed him just briefly after they did that uh, first episode last July. Um, And I can tell that he is honestly trying to understand our position. And um, not many Phaedobaptists have done that. Um, part of that's our own fault. The material has not always been available or, um, communicated well. Uh, but he is, I can tell really doing the best he can to understand the position. You know, he asked on the last episode, he said, I don't understand how you guys can affirm, um, 8.6 in the confession. So, you know, please let me know. So that it will be a large part of what we're doing here. Um, but I appreciate his heart and, and hopefully we can respond in like manner and just, um, have a good conversation here. Um, do you want me to, to dive into Voss's triangle or is there anything you want to add before that?
0: Yeah, just uh, to tag on your point, it, you're right. It is something that I, I think, especially uh, with us, as Baptists and, and us, you know, federal, uh 69 Federalists, we tend to get very passionate about these things and then, and that's good. And I think that, you know, it is an important a topic, but I I do think sometimes it does become such a schism that we we create these unnecessary divisions where we don't need to, and there becomes hostility. There shouldn't be. We love we love our Presbyterian brethren, um, but we believe they're wrong, obviously. But we we try to to lovingly help them understand. And and I do think to your point, Boothie was Boothby was very helpful in that regard. Um, I think it was that comment you were talking about was. Uh, where he was talking about um, chapter eight of our confession with commu- uh, what does communication mean in the the signs. And he was trying to really work through that and understand what that what that meant. And I, uh, I appreciate that humility and not just writing us off, you know, necessarily.
1: Yeah, it's been um, it's actually kind of been the become the focal point. discussion at this point between 1689 federalism and Westminster federalism uh you know we get through all the other issues again in the the mosaic covenant all these other things and and again and again and again 8.6 keeps coming up and
2: Mm. um,
1: some people will completely misrepresent us and not want to have any dialogue um there's some popular blogs out there that have um not represented us well and not wanted to seek our understanding and have actively dismissed our correction when we when we clarify so I appreciate uh that they do want to understand what we have to say here. Yeah.
0: All right. So I guess we can discuss uh our topic today, but starting off with Voss's triangle.
1: Yeah, so this is uh central to their presentation of of typology. Um if anybody has is watching this and they have not listened to that episode of Reform Forum, please go back and listen to it first. Maybe listen to it a couple times, maybe different um, a, a new idea that you're hearing there, but it's important that you listen to that and understand it first before we dive into here. We're not going to be playing clips just for time's sake, um, so so please do go, go back and try to understand exactly what they're saying. Um, they the the argument is that um, there's a unique understanding of typology in the Book of Hebrews that uh, Gerhardus Voss clarifies in a triangle that he that he created to explain it, uh, and that that forms the Uh, the foundation of their understanding of a dual sided covenant uh, mixed membership in the covenant of grace uh, and salvation in the old Testament. And it's, it's a little confusing trying to understand what exactly is going on. It's kind of this backwards typology with, you know, the old Testament being the anti-type and um, it, it can get a little bit confusing, but we've got the, the triangle there up on screen in a nutshell what Voss is trying to do is actually deal with the Greek text in Hebrews. Which the, the, the difficulty doesn't always come out in the English translations, uh, but he's trying to explain how uh, the earthly sanctuary in the Old Covenant could be an antitype. Uh, the normal understanding is that the Old Covenant contains many types, and they are fulfilled in the New Testament, New Covenant antitypes. But in uh, Hebrews nine twenty four, it calls the um, I don't have the I don't think I have the full text up here. But uh, Is it called copy like eight five. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I thought I had it in here. Um, but uh, anyways, it, it refers to the earthly sanctuary as the antitype in the Greek antitupa. Uh 924 says either shadow or, or copies of the true things. So in English it doesn't raise any questions, but the Greek is actually anti-type of the true things. So that's completely backwards from the way that we understand typology. So the author of Hebrews is somehow calling the earthly sanctuary the antitype of the true things. So Voss is just trying to explain how is that possible? How can the author use that kind of language. So he goes back to Hebrews 8.5, which says that the earthly sanctuary was made after the pattern shown to Moses on the mountain. So the Greek there for pattern is tupos or type. So 8.5 is saying that the earthly sanctuary was made after the type in heaven or the pattern in heaven. So Voss is saying that In his triangle at A at the top, you have the heavenly realities, the heavenly sanctuary. And that was shown to Moses as a blueprint or a pattern, something to be copied. And the earthly sanctuary is then the copy of that. Um, The uh, uh, Thayer's dictionary, Greek dictionary says for anti-tupon, it can refer to a thing formed after some pattern or a thing resembling another, its counterpart. So technically, it just refers to something that was formed after a pattern. So that's what 8.5 is talking about. Moses was shown a pattern on the mountain. Um, There's disagreement over what that could be, but it it seems reasonable what reform suggests, what they went with, that he was shown the heavenly sanctuary. And then the earthly sanctuary was to be um, follow after that pattern. So in that sense, the heavenly sanctuary was a type and the earthly sanctuary was the anti-type. Um, so the important thing to understand is is type and anti-type, we've developed a whole theology around it, but technically it, it has a lot of different uses and af- applications linguistically and it really depends on context to understand what it means. So if I use the example of uh, of a painting, depending on on how the painting is constructed, the painting could be uh, the type or the, or excuse me, the painting could be an anti-type, but it might be Uh, a copy in shadow, or it might be the true form. So if somebody sketches out a drawing on a piece of paper, and they use that as a basis for creating a painting, the sketch would be the shadow, and the painting is the true reality. And the sketch would be thrown away and discarded. And so in that sense, the sketch would be the type, and that's a shadow of the anti-type, the painting. Uh, But we could flip that on its head and we could say that maybe somebody is creating a painting of an actual real mountain that they're looking at right now, a real landscape. So they are copying that real true form in the painting. So the painting is the copy, but the type or the pattern is the true mountain that they're looking at. And the anti-type is the painting. So in both cases, the painting is the anti-type, but in one it's, it's the copy and in the other, it's the reality. So it's, my point is it's relative and contextual the way that type and anti-type is used. And we don't want to get too caught up with building a whole theology around that because it's simply a linguistic technical reference. Um, And I think Voss's point here is that, um, Moses created a tabernacle after the pattern of of the true form in heaven. And that's why the uh, heavenly sanctuary can be the type and the earthly sanctuary can be the antitype relative to each other. that's that's just how antitype and type can work linguistically. And I don't I, I think that's a perfectly fine explanation. It helps explain the the Greek text. Um, there's no disagreement there. Uh, we can agree with him. He says the Old Testament was a shadow of the heavenly reality. Um, and then he, he, especially when he says the new Testament is not merely a reproduction of the heavenly reality, but it's actual substance, the reality itself, right? So C down on the triangle there, he's important to say that if you look at that, that caption underneath, he says a equals C. So he's actually trying to explain Greek text, uh, Greek language in 10, uh, chapter 10, verse one. We don't need to get into that here, but, um, the important point is he says that a equals C. Um, the new covenant is the true reality uh, of heaven so we can agree there Uh, the disagreement comes when they go to the added step and then say well because of that the old testament sacrifices were realized eschatology embodied in types Mm -hmm. so i'll pause there before I go any further, but that's where the disagreement was. That's, that's the setup for the triangle, what it's trying to explain and then what they try to draw from that. So any comment from you guys at this point, before I go any further?
0: Uh, Sure. So with regards to Voss's triangle, when I listened to this episode, I did not agree with that view of typology at first. It took me, I think I had to listen to the episode a few times to really understand um, what it is they're talking about. And then I, Mm -hmm realize, okay, this is really what the text is saying, and maybe I'm having uh, too much of a closed view of what typology is, because my general view of typology is that the anti-type is greater than the type, and therefore you have more of the picture that you see throughout the rest of the book of Hebrews, um, where like with the sacrifices pointing forward to Christ, fulfilling them in his sacrifice, and his high priestly role fulfilling the Old Testament high priestly role. Um, and so it took me some time to, to understand that. Um, and I think that one thing that these brothers do is they overemphasize this triangle and use it as an overall framework that they then place on their overall covenant theology. Um, and without really taking all of these different typologies that we see in the New Testament, uh, as a whole and making sure that the scriptures are being interpreted in that way. That's how I see it anyways. But, uh, I don't know. Sean, do you have any thoughts?
2: Um, I mean, I was basically the, the same way. Uh, we were originally texting, and you had listened to the video, and I hadn't listened to it yet. And when you described it as, oh, yeah, the, um, the tabernacle is the anti-type, I, I couldn't fathom how, why would they would say that. But ultimately, it is a true and correct point. That is what's being said. You just need to understand how anti-type is functioning in that, uh, in that context.
1: Yeah. So I think that they draw some unwarranted conclusions from that, as, as we'll discuss here. Um, and I think that they themselves are a bit inconsistent in, in how they work it out. We'll, we'll discuss that as well. Um, the Discussing the, the difference between 1689 federalism's view of typology and Westminster's and, and specifically the, the folks at Reform Forum, Uh, it's important to understand Voss's slightly idiosyncratic view of types Um, in his book, Biblical Theology. So what we've been discussing with the triangle in his book uh, is from his book, The Teaching of the Epistle of the Hebrews. Um, And then in his book, Biblical Theology, uh, it's much more elaborated. And there he tries to argue... Um, he tries to explain the relationship between a symbol and a type. Mm-hmm. And he tries to argue that um, the a, a symbol in, a, in the Old Coven, a symbol is something that visually represents a present reality. So something that the Old Testament people had at that time. Um, and that symbol could also function as a type, pointing towards something that is yet future. Um, but where he's a little idiosyncratic here, and I've got a quote from him is he argues that a type must also be a symbol and therefore must in the old covenant symbolize or picture a present spiritual reality. Um, so the, uh, a symbol is a visual representation of a spiritual reality. It's present existence and present application. A type is related to what will become real or applicable in the future. So a quote here from biblical theology is, the things symbolized and the things typified are not different sets of things. They are, in reality, the same things, only different in this respect, that they come first on a lower stage of development and redemption, and then again in a later period on a higher stage. Thus what is symbolical with regard to the already existing edition of the fact or truth becomes typical prophetic of the later final edition of that same fact or truth. From this, it will be perceived that a type can never be a type independently of its being first a symbol. The gateway to the house of typology is at the farther end of the house of symbolism. Um, they have a reform forum has a whole uh, crisis center has a whole, um, episode specifically on that section in their, uh, Voss group. So if you want to understand how they interpret that, go ahead and listen to that. Um, in my readings, I found that, uh, idiosyncratic of, of Voss. I haven't seen that definition or argument of type in anybody else. Uh, Beal, for example, does not include that in his definition of, um, of a type and typology. Um, but he's basically arguing that uh, if I'm understanding him correctly, uh, animal sacrifice, for instance, symbolizes uh, Christ's atonement and Christ's atonement is a present spirituality for those Old Testament saints. So in that sense, it's a symbol. It's a type in the sense that it's depicted as an animal sacrifice and what's to come is Christ's true sacrifice. So that's where the type comes in. But the symbol is the same. Uh the animal sacrifices are doing the same thing as Christ's sacrifice. And so they are united in that way. So a type has to be related to a present spiritual reality symbolized uh, for old Testament saints. So that's, that's boss's view. Um, and I haven't found it found elsewhere. Like I mentioned in Beale or, or others. Um, contrary to that understanding, our view would be that a type functions on two different levels or it has two different meanings uh, first level meaning or function and a second level meaning or function. Um, so, for example, uh, Beale, I think in his chapter one, a handbook on the New Testament, use of the Old Testament. Um, he says, for example, typological escalation would be the correspondence of God providing literal manna from heaven for physical sustenance. And then providing the manna of Christ from heaven for spiritual sustenance, right? So according to Beale's definition of typology, I think he's correct. Escalation is an important part of, uh, of typology. So it's not just the same thing. Uh, there is escalation in meaning. So he gives the example, manna in the wilderness fed the Israelites physically, physical sustenance. The anti-type of that is Christ. He feeds us spiritually with his, uh, with his body. Um, so that's the two-level meaning there. It had its own function independently of it pointing to Christ. It had Mm -hmm. its own old covenant function. It fed the Israelites. It fed them miraculously, but it was physical sustenance. It fed them. It had a first-level typical uh, function separate from its uh, work depicting... Uh, pointing towards Christ, uh, the anti-type. And uh, I actually stumbled across a PowerPoint presentation from Werm Poitras. Uh, I think it's on the the, uh, Westminster Theological Seminary site buried in there somewhere. I I don't know how I found it. I wasn't looking for it, but um, uh, he's got PowerPoint slides and he makes the exact same point. He uses the same example of the manna and he says the old covenant function uh, was physical sustenance for Israel it's anti-type is spiritual sustenance in Christ. There's escalation, goes on and on. So he uses the, uh, the same example. That um, understanding, as far as I am understanding Voss and, and Reformed Forum's interpretation of him, is not compatible with Voss. Voss would say, no, it has to have, the, the manna had to have a present spiritual symbolic significance for Old Testament saints. And if it didn't, then it couldn't be a type um and so you know you it, it's interesting there um uh, a lot of westminster federalism folks will go to following calvin first corinthians 10 1 through 4 with talk which talks about the manna in the wilderness and they will um it, it talks about uh, uh and the water was christ or the, the food was christ i forget the exact way it phrases it there um Anyways, they interpret that as saying that the manna was a sacrament of Christ. So mm-hmm. that would be that would be more in line with Voss's understanding there. And it's actually in Westminster Confession twenty seven point five: the sacraments of the Old Testament, in regard to the spiritual things thereby signified and exhibited, were for substance the same with those of the New. And the scripture reference there is First Corinthians ten one through four. So, in my reading, that's very much at odds with what uh, Beale and Poitrus recognize. Um, based on Jesus interpretation of the manna. Uh, but Calvin would say, no, that's a sacrament of Christ. And we we'll, don't need to go into it more there. I've got a post on my blog if it's pretty long if anybody wants to get into there. Hodge argues against that interpretation and, and there's a lot of there's actually some OPC reports about uh, Patdo communion that get, mm. get into that interpretation and they're split and disagreed over whether or not that was a sacrament. Um, I talked with uh, Lane Keister at uh, Green Baggins' blog. He responded to my post there and he said he didn't think it was a sacrament, even though the confession says it was. So it, it's it's a little bit of a, a murky area, but that's just a, a, an instance of how they tend to view those things. Uh, that's that's sorry, interesting.
2: Oh, uh, That's interesting because... Immediately for me, that's one of the spots, just talking about it, thinking about it, where uh, to, it's very obvious to prove that um, the Old Testament types didn't contain the substance of um, the, uh, the anti-type. Uh, Jesus says that in John 6, they ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Whoever eats of this bread, this manna that comes down from heaven, he will live forever. So there's clearly a, a distinction there. They weren't getting the substance in the Old Testament. Even though it was typified,
1: yeah, and this we'll get into this as as we go through the rest of the episode. It's it's we can we can talk past each other a little bit here if we're not careful, and that's why I mean if if Pastor Boothby or or Camden uh, ever want to sit down and talk about this, it may be very very fruitful to do that because we can use the same language and talk past each other a little bit. So um, the way they would tend to view it is that. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have the same substance, which is Christ, but not everybody who participates in the sacrament receives the substance. So they would argue not everybody who is baptized or partakes of the Lord's Supper receives the substance in Christ. Mm -hmm. And the same, they would say the same is true of the manna or the same was true of the animal sacrifices. Only those who had true faith participated in the manna. So then they would say the substance is the same and you have the same inward, outward participation in the sacrament or substance. Um, So that's how they would tend to view that, whereas I agree with you, Jesus is saying, no, the manna did not feed them spiritually, it did not save them, and the counterpart to that is Christ's blood, not not the the symbolic Passover meal, Mm. right? So they would say the New Testament equivalent of manna is the Lord's Supper, and we'd say, no, the New Testament equivalent of manna is Christ's body. So it's, it's a little bit different way of, of, of looking at things or, or correlating them.
0: I think that's really where the disti- the issue comes down to is how do you view, do you conflate the, the categories of type and anti-type or do you actually see them as substantially different? I think that's where probably our biggest uh, tension would be with regards to how they, you know, we say that they conflate them uh, and not actually make that proper distinction between type and anti-type. And if if the substance was the covenant itself, um, then those uh, the manna or those things would have no secondary reality. But we know they did. Some of them kept the people in the land, as you said before, Um, they fed them spiritually or physically as opposed to being uh, fed spiritually. So the the distinction is important. Otherwise, we can we'll fall into that uh, area of conflating those categories where we don't need to be.
1: Yeah. And. Uh, the OPC did a study committee on the doctrine of republication, which is, <clears throat> you know, kind of Klein's view that the Mosaic covenant was a covenant of works. So after a few decades, they decided to look at it, um, as a denomination, put together a, a study committee on it. And I think the report is very helpful. I encourage people to read it. Uh, I believe Lane Tipton was one of the authors. Mm. I appreciate his, I don't always agree with him, but I appreciate his precision. Um, He tends to be very clear in working out what he's saying and, and all that. And I, uh, the parts of the, of the report that were particularly helpful, I think he had a a large hand in that. Um, I wanted to read part of the quote here because they do, they do recognize, so they, they categorize or recognize uh, uh, the subservient covenant tradition, which is, uh, 1689 federalism is a form of the servient, subservient covenant tradition um, that, that viewed the Mosaic covenant as distinct from the covenant of grace as a typological covenant of works. So they did uh, recognize that in the report and talk about it and compare it um, with Westminster's view. And they recognize exactly the point that we're saying here. The difference between Westminster and the subservient covenant view was the subservient saw this two-level function or meaning with types and Westminster does not. Um <clears throat> So the quote here says, by adding obedience to the ceremonial law, to the essential condition of the covenant, the subservient covenant position gives Mosaic typology a fundamentally works-based character rather than an evangelical one. Proponents did not deny that these various types also signified spiritual benefits, but they insisted that they only did so secondarily or indirectly, while their primary reference was to temporal things promised in the covenant. Cameron, John Cameron put it this way, the sacrament sacrifices and ceremonies of the Old Testament did set forth Christ and the benefits by Christ, not primarily, but secondarily. But the sacraments of the new covenant do show forth Christ primarily and that clearly. Um, so the report continues, thus circumcision primarily signified the separation between the seed of Abraham and the rest of the nations and sealed to them the earthly promise. The Passover primarily signified the passing over of the destroying angel. The sacrifices and washings primarily represented only a carnal holiness. Only secondarily did these benefits signify Christ. And then later in the report, they comment further, anything that functions as an administration of the covenant of grace must, in fact, administer grace to those who are under it. Such it is with the other types, ceremonies, and other ordinances delivered to the Jews. The administrative aspects of the Old Covenant were to function as the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to Israel the benefits of redemption, from Shorter Catechism 88. Uh, Typology is a subset of the broader category of the administration of the covenant. According to our standards, typology is an aspect of the administration of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament, which in turn is described as the outward means of the Old Testament era for communicating grace to the elect of that era. Saving grace was not simply administered merely as a consequence or byproduct of these types. Rather, saving grace was present by and in these types, and in this way communicated grace to believers. In terms of our confessional definitions, to say that something is an administration of grace means that grace is communicated by and in that thing. So they recognize the distinction between the subservient covenants view of types and Westminster's view. Subservient saw this two-level function or two-level meaning, Um, whereas they did not. It was those Old Covenant sacrifices, those are simply um, the equivalent of baptism or the Lord's Supper today. They were just pictures of Christ and his grace, and that's what Old Testament saints understood them to be. They had no other function other than communicating the, the grace of Christ to the people in a visual form. Um. The uh, I think that brings us maybe to the first clip we snagged here. Um, uh, like I said, Lane Tipton is is very precise and uh, I think he often draws out conclusions well. And in this case, I think he draws out the conclusion of that. Um, and in my opinion, this is a bit of a reductio ad absurdum. He would say it's not at all, but but I, I think it is. I think he takes that understanding to its logical conclusion. So, um We've got a clip here from, this is Christ the Center. No, I'm sorry. This was a Reform Forum 2014 uh, conference, I think. Um, I forget the title of it. Uh, it's about uh, the re- redemption, redemptive son. He's talking about um, Israel as, as typological of Christ. and uh, But it's the 2014 Reform Forum conference. All right, pulling
0: it up now.
3: The following was recorded at the 2014 Remember
4: Exodus 423 Let my son go that he may worship me Israel is a blood bought son of God as a nation Israel is redeemed by blood out of Egypt, redeemed by the blood of the Paschal Lamb, spared the judgment that befalls the firstborn in Egypt. Israel, as the typological son of God, is redeemed by blood. And there is no other way by which this son can be liberated from sin and bondage. And the blood of the Passover Lamb typifies the blood of Christ typifies the blood of the Redeemer. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Hebrews 9, 22, 23. Put
1: in... Uh, Go ahead and keep playing a little bit longer.
4: Global redemptive historical perspective. Israel, the typological son, is redeemed by the blood of the eschatological son as that blood is typified in the Passover. Even though the benefits of that blood are mediated in the modality of a typological blood sacrifice. In addition to this, remember the preface to the Ten Commandments situates Israel as son of God within the context of redemption out of Egypt. I am not only your God, but the Lord your God, who with outstretched arm brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of bondage. And God accepts sacrifice for the sins of the nation, does he not? The Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. The sins of the nation are confessed over the head of a scapegoat, and it bears away the sin of Israel the sin of the whole nation. And the Lord is long-suffering and patient with His typological Son. He does not deal with them according to strict justice, wholly devoid of grace. Were God to do so, sinful Israel could not exist for a second in the holy realm of Canaan, much less for generations. Hence, God relates to Israel as the Redeemer Lord. He is the Redeemer, and Israel, as a nation, is redeemed, bought by blood. Therefore, whatever obedience Israel, as a typical son, is to offer to God, that obedience must be construed as the obedience of the redeemed, and categorically distinguished from the obedience of the Redeemer, and it must be done so at every point. And if the Son of God, Israel, is redeemed, such redemption can only be understood in terms of union with the Redeemer, union with the Messiah. Israel, as Son of God, redeemed by blood and brought out of Egypt, is united to the promised Messiah typified in the sacrificial offering.
0: Okay. Yeah, you can hear the, the explicit conflation of type and anti-type in there.
1: Yeah. Redemption by the blood of the four-legged animal, the Passover lamb, is redemption by the blood of Christ. Wow. Animal sacrifice is not distinct from Christ's sacrifice. It is simply a different modality of Christ's sacrifice. Wow. So... Israel's redemption out of Egypt was eschatological redemption by the blood of Christ. Uh it they were Israel was united to Christ. It's a complete conflation of type and anti-type mm-hmm. there. Um and that's the logical conclusion there. Uh and and I don't think that's what scripture was teaching at all. Um well it's interesting he uses the pet
0: um from Hebrews about the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, um, as if that was Christ's blood actually being shed for the people of Israel back then. It almost seems like what's the point of having Christ's blood at all if that's the case? And then um how were the old testament saints then looking forward to, to Christ's coming and the promise at all? You have issues with with that as well.
1: Well, the, he would say that it it was it it was Christ's blood um working in anticipation he would have to come in history and accomplish it um, Mm. for the blood to be efficacious but his point is that that the the blood of the animal is nothing other than a mirage of of christ it's just a modality the the animal sacrifice does nothing other than um bring christ's blood to the people Mm. it's just an outward shell they talk about it administration Inside yep. of the shell is is Christ's blood. So inside of the lamb is Christ's blood, and the lamb is just a way to, to deliver Christ's blood to the people. Um, uh, so that, that that's how they would would look at that. It's a different modality of Christ's sacrifice. Uh, but I don't I don't think that's what Scripture teaches. I think the earthly sanctuary was not a means of affecting any change in the heavenly sanctuary. When it talks about without the shedding of blood there was no forgiveness of sins, there there were old covenant forgiveness of sins on an earthly level within the land of Canaan, mm-hmm. and that w- that was distinct and separate from eternal forgiveness, eschatological forgiveness in the sanctuary of heaven, and uh, the the earthly sanctuary was not a means of affecting any change in the heavenly sanctuary. It was a copy of a heavenly sanctuary, not a mediary or a modality of the heavenly sanctuary. They were two different things. Yes, it was formed after, and it was supposed to be a pointing to it, but they were two different things that functioned on two different levels. Uh, animal sacrifices did not change anything in heaven, but they did change things on earth, in the Holy Land, and earthly temple. Uh, <clears throat> the entire Old Covenant earthly theocracy was uh, a grand analogy for heavenly and esch- eschatological realities, not simply an application of heavenly and eschatological realities so that's how they would view it is that this whole old covenant system it was a way of applying the heavenly realities at that time Um, and we would say no it was an analogy uh to to heavenly realities that functioned on its own level first and also pointed to heavenly realities but it was not simply a modality of of heaven uh reaching down do you have uh that clip from camden on the holy war
3: I absolutely love uh, thinking through th- through this and thinking about intrusion because it's a helpful way to consider some very difficult portions of scripture, especially when we get to um, you know the holy war aspects of the Old Testament. Trying to understand how how is Israel supposed to go and kill all of the Canaanites, for example? How does that make any sense? Well, you need to read on that, uh, and and read his biblical defense, and then see if that comports with Scripture, which I think it does. But in an, in essence, think of a final judgment being projected and uh, like being played out in a microcosm in an anticipatory form. So it's a it's a window into what final judgment is, which is a complete separation of sheep and goats, and its utter and final judgment against those outside the covenant and protection and, and salvation, ultimately, for those inside the covenants. It's drawing the lines. There's no gray area in final judgment, and that's what we see in the theocracy. But that's not the end-all and be-all. It's it's merely a copy and a pre-rehearsal, in the sense, or at least a pre-enactment of okay. what is to come in the...
1: So we're making the same point that he makes there. So he makes it with regards to judgment in the old covenant. He, he says um, it was a projection and playing out in a microcosm in an anticipor- anticipatory form of what the final judgment will be. In other words, if I'm understanding him correctly, he's saying it's a, it's a picture of what the final judgment will be. It is not the final judgment itself. He says it's merely a copy and pre-rehearsal. It was not final judgment, but it pictured final judgment. So we would say you just need to do the same thing, with the other side of the coin uh, in terms of eschatological salvation. Redemption out of Egypt was not uh, redemption from hell, right? It was uh, the old covenant salvation is not eschatological salvation. It's a picture, an analogy in a microcosm as a copy and rehearsal, pre-rehearsal of what is to come. It's an analogy. It functions on a different level in the same way that, that he sees this final judgment playing out. Um, uh, in the same way, the uh, the animal sacrifices in the earthly sanctuary were an analogy of Christ's sacrifice in the heavenly sanctuary. They were not Christ's sacrifice itself in a different modality. It was, it was an analogy of it. Um, the blood of bulls and goats was not the blood of Christ in animal form. So importantly here, Hebrews says that the blood of Christ does something that the blood of bulls and goats did not do. Mm -hmm. There must be a functional difference between the two. The blood of bulls and goats did purify the flesh, right? They they weren't simply um, just this outward shell that dispensed Christ's blood. They actually did something in distinction from Christ's blood, apart from Christ's blood. They purified the flesh. That's something that Christ's blood did not do. It's something the animal sacrifices did do. You have to distinguish the two and how they functioned. One is not just a modality of the other. Um, the, uh, with regards to the holy war that Camden was talking about there, uh, the holy war meant the death of other nations in the holy land. So once God came into that land, that became holy land where God dwelt and uh, no sin could dwell there. Obviously, sin continued to dwell within Israel, mm-hmm. but, but not outside of Israel. Um, and these nations that were destroyed, Scripture refers to them as kerim or burnt offerings. They were devoted to destruction uh, because they were brought into the holy presence of God in the holy land and were therefore destroyed. Uh, but Israel was not destroyed. Even though they were likewise sinful, and if if this was the final judgment, then Israel would be wiped out for the most Mm -hmm. part. They were not. Why? It wasn't because they were covered by the blood of Christ. Sacrifices. It was because of the animal sacrifices. They were not eschatologically atoned for by the blood of Christ. They were typically atoned for by the blood of bulls and goats and lambs in order to dwell in the typical holy land. Right? That did not allow them entrance into heaven, but it did allow them entrance into Canaan. Um, Vern Poitras has a book called um, The Shadow of Christ in the Law of Moses, and it's, it's really good. It's worth reading. Um, he says, since God's standards of justice are truly universal, we are bound to ask how Israel comes to be under God's r- rule without suffering the same fate as the Canaanites. How can anyone approach God's presence without dying on account of sin? Does a different standard apply to Israel? The Old Testament contains ample indications that God brings the Israelites under his rule by a process of holy war similar to the conquest of Canaan. In the case of the Canaanites, the approach of God and his rule means consecration to utter destruction. In the case of Israel, the approach of God involves the use of substitutes that are consecrated to destruction. The Passover lamb substitutes for the firstborn of Israel, and animal sacrifices substitute for the people more generally. Uh, I think that's totally correct. He goes on to make a few more comments that I wouldn't agree with, but that in and of itself it explains our view quite well. The animal sacrifices did have a function on their own, not simply as a modality of Christ's blood. They atone for Israel in order to allow them to remain in the land, whereas other nations were destroyed. Mm. Um, as a couple, a side note here, a couple of books to get into this more. One would be Abraham Booth's "The Kingdom of Essay on the Kingdom of Christ. Um, he does a really good job of, of showing this typical nature of, of everything that's going on in, in the Holy Land. And he's actually building off of uh, a 17th century Scottish Presbyterian named John Erskine, uh, who was good friends with Jonathan Edwards and, and had all of Jonathan Edwards books published in Scotland. Um, so that's a good book. It's on the 1689 Federalism website. Um, and then the other one is actually uh, Joel McDermott, has a book called um, "Consuming Fire," uh, subtitle is something about the Holy of Holies. Um, he's writing largely in the context of, of theonomy, trying to deal with that. But his treatment of the Karim principle is actually really, really good. And I haven't, I haven't seen a parallel in, in other stuff that I've read. He he brings out a lot of really important stuff that's really good um, about how the how the Karam principle functioned in in Israel. So I highly recommend reading that book. Um, So in short, the blood of the Passover lamb saved the Israelites, not the blood of Christ. Uh, And the objection will be, well, how can that be possible? Uh, How how can God show grace to these sinners apart from Christ? Um, We don't need to elaborate on that here, but my short response would be that Um, everything happening in in typical, the typical Holy land is happening upon the foundation, a a common grace layer, common grace foundation. So, Mm -hmm. um, how can God allow a sinner to simply breathe the air that he's breathing today? Right. The the answer is because God is long suffering towards him. Mm You know, how can God give all these gifts to the unbeliever, to the unregenerate? How is that possible? Does that mean that they too are redeemed by the blood of Christ? No, it means that God is long-suffering and he can uh, give these things uh, under a common grace order, and I would simply say that this typical um, Israelite theocracy is built upon that, where these are essentially heightened common grace blessings of uh, health and wealth and prosperity um, that God sets certain terms for receiving those benefits, And, and one does not have to be eschatologically redeemed and united to Christ in order to Um, receive those benefits. Um, God chose to dispense those benefits by the blood of bulls and goats, and he's free to do so. It doesn't have to be through the blood of Christ at that typical level within a common grace order. um, where, Where judgment is suspended or delayed. Um. Let's see the when the Old Testament sacrifices were offered in the earthly sanctuary, there was no sacrifice. So, uh, kind of jumping back a little bit to Voss's triangle here, the way that they tend to talk about this triangle, and I don't, I I don't know that this was Voss's intention. Um, they they argue that the Klein builds upon Voss here, and I, I I don't think it works out the way that they think that it does. So, um. With that triangle, they'll look at A at the top as the heavenly reality, and then they will talk about it shadowing down into the old covenant. Uh, so, what we looked at before was the author of Hebrews is simply talking about Moses saw the heavenly sanctuary and used that as a pattern to build the earthly sanctuary. In my opinion, they take that a step further and they talk about that as uh, the heavenly realities shadowing down into the old covenant and what they mean by that is salvation in christ being conferred or communicated to old testament saints so that's what they think that that a to b shadowing down means or implies is salvation eschatological salvation is shadowing down in the animal sacrifices in in the old covenant rituals Uh, i think that's going well beyond what uh, the author of Hebrews is saying by the mere use of type and and anti-type in the way that we discussed. Um, The point is uh, the important point there to understand is, is uh, if, if Moses on the mountain saw a vision of heaven, uh, it was a vision of heaven prior to Christ's sacrifice. So in other words, it was a, um, it was a, a heavenly sanctuary that had no sacrifice in it. So we can't draw from that as if there is realized eschatology at A that shadows down into Old Testament uh, saints in order to save them, right? The vision that he saw was before Christ had come. And the whole point of the author of Hebrews is now Christ has come and he has entered that heavenly sanctuary in the new covenant to present himself as a sacrifice, um,
0: and even says so, that it's been sanctified with better sacrifices than these. So, And then Jesus entered based on his blood and his sacrifice, um, essentially purifying and clearing the way for us to enter into the Holy of Holies. Yeah. Yeah, there is that difference there in terms of uh, the substance.
1: Right. And so the, the point I'm trying to make here is they are trying to use Voss's triangle as a way to answer how Old Testament saints could be saved. Yeah, I don't. I don't think the f- triangle can perform that function. Um, the heavenly reality in A does not provide uh, salvation for Old Testament saints because it's unrealized eschatology. It's it's the heavenly sanctuary where God dwells apart from Christ's sacrifice. Um, the the distinction because they're talking about vertically there, and then B to C is temporal. But there is no realized eschatology until C. The relationship between A and C in Voss's triangle is a little murky, right? He says right there in in note in his note there at the bottom, he says C equals A. So he's really trying to deal with Hebrews 10.1 and the language there of of what it means for the Old Testament shadows and then the New Covenant to be the true form, uh, the true image. So he's trying to wrestle with that, and, and, and I think it, the A to C relationship there gets a little murky as a result. But the point is that um, salvation for Old Testament saints has to come from the future. It can't just come from heaven down. It has to come from the future back. So trying to say that the heavenly realities are shadowed down as if, if that is to mean not shattered back from the future, uh, it's a confusion of categories and it, and it doesn't answer the question of how they can be saved. Um, let's see. Can you play Boothby's uh, quote there? Yep.
5: Adi realized eschatology. Can you go
1: back five seconds?
5: And Klein has an intrusionary... Uh, paradigm that he speaks of, or an intrusionary scheme. Uh, if you, if those want, who want to read about it, you can look it up in the structure of biblical authority. But uh, he's really doing the same thing that that Voss is doing. He just gives I don't gives think that's the terminology, case, but... and so this is maybe another another way of looking at it. <clears throat> you see what Voss calls calls the heavenly reality, Klein calls realized eschatology and uh, in the old testament realized eschatology he says intrudes into time embodied by earthly types and so he says something like the pattern of things earthly he's talking about earthly types the pattern of things earthly embody realized eschatology and what you can go and are pause are really there. trying to show.
1: Um so what they're trying to do is is argue so this intrusion principle from Klein, they're trying to argue that's the function that A serves. But but A, if we're simply talking about Hebrews nine twenty-four, the heavenly realities and, and Hebrews eight five that Moses saw on the mountain, that was before Christ had offered himself as a sacrifice. Mm -hmm. There is no realized eschatology in that pattern. It's an empty sanctuary. There is only realized eschatology in C, in the new covenant, when Christ comes and enters that heavenly sanctuary and offers himself as a sacrifice. So this this shadowing down is not realized eschatology. The shadowing down is simply Moses creating an earthly tabernacle, tabernacle as a shadow and copy of the uh, heavenly sanctuary. But salvation is different. Salvation comes from the future. Salvation comes from Christ's um, priestly work in the new covenant, right? So this vertical shadowing down doesn't accomplish what they think it does in terms of Old Testament saints salvation. It must come from the future back. Um, And this, this is how... Uh, Essentially what we're saying is that the way the old covenant saints were saved was not by a a shadowing down of a pre-Christ heavenly reality, but from a uh, reaching back of Christ's sacrifice in the future, which is the new covenant. So Old Testament saints, old covenant saints were saved by the new covenant. Right. That's that's mm-hmm. the inescapable, in, inescapable conclusion that we have to come through. And I think the triangle is is trying to, to somehow get around that. And maybe that's not their intention, but it, it just can't accomplish what they think it accomplishes. Uh, I got a few quotes here and, and what I've just described here about Old Testament saints being saved by the new covenant is a very old view and was actually a fairly dominant view uh, prior to the Reformation. Uh, So if you bear with me here, I've got a few quotes. Augustine said, uh, these pertain to the New Testament, by which he means covenant. uh, If you look in context there, are the children of promise and are regenerated by God, the father and a free mother of this kind, were all the righteous men of old and Moses himself, the minister of the Old Testament, the heir of the new. Let us therefore choose whether to call the righteous men of old, the children of the bondwoman or of the free, be it far from us to say of the bondwoman. Therefore, if of the free, they pertain to the new covenant in the Holy Spirit, whom, as making alive, the apostle opposes to the killing letter. For on what ground do they not belong to the grace of the New Testament or new covenant? So that's uh, Augustine's uh, treatise against two letters of the Pelagians, 406 to 407. And if you go to the 1689 Federalism website, there's just a mountain of quotes from him saying the same thing over and over and over again. Um, Aquinas learned from Augustine built upon that in his Summa Theologica, um, book one, section two, 106 to 107. He says, as to those under the Old Testament who through faith were acceptable to God, in this respect, they belong to the New Testament. For they were not justified except through faith in Christ, who is the author of the New Testament. No, no man ever had the grace of the Holy Ghost except through faith in Christ, either explicit or implicit. And by faith in Christ, man belongs to the New Testament. Consequently, whoever had the law of grace instilled into them belonged to the New Testament. At all times, there have been some persons belonging to the New Testament. And this is actually quoted in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, point 1964, there were under the regiment of the old covenant people who possessed the charity and grace of the Holy spirit and longed above all for the spiritual and eternal promises by which they were associated with the new law. Even though the old law prescribed charity, it did not give the Holy spirit through whom God's charity has been poured into our hearts. So for more on Augustine and Aquinas, I recommend reading Joshua Moon's uh, dissertation called Jeremiah's new covenant An Augustinian reading. So he marches through, um, Uh, The the historical period there up to the Reformation and compares uh, Augustine's reading to to Calvin's and and Bollinger and things like that, uh, showing that they they were different in that regard and that this was an older view. Um, That being said, Calvin does at times have to fall back upon this view. Um, In his commentary on Hebrews 8.10, he's trying to deal with um, uh, the the work of the spirit promised in Jeremiah and, and how... How can we say that there, what is it exactly that's new about the work of the spirit in the new? And at first he says, well, it's just, it's just a greater work. It's a greater work of of the spirit in uh, the hearts of those in the new covenant than it was in the old. But then he says, well, wait a minute. We get to Abraham and his faith excels all of ours. Like how, how can we say that we have greater faith now than Abraham did? Mm. He he kind of wrestles with a little bit and he says, well, Whatever spiritual gifts the fathers obtained, they were accidental, as it were, to their age, for it was necessary for them to direct their eyes to Christ in order to become possessed of them. There is yet no reason why God should not have extended the grace of the new covenant to the fathers. This is the true solution of the question. Um, so it's, it's really an inescapable conclusion that every Reformed theologian is going to come to if they just look it squarely in the face. Um, salvation is of Old Testament saints is from the new covenant. (laughs) Whether or not that means the old and the new are the same covenant is a different question, but the salvation of Old Testament saints, every reformed theologian has to recognize that comes from the new covenant. Um, Owen in his commentary on Hebrews wrestled with, with this and he says, these things being observed, we may consider that the scripture does plainly and expressly make mention of two testaments or covenants and distinguish between them in such a way as what is spoken can hardly be accommodated unto a twofold administration of the same covenant. Wherefore, we must grant two distinct covenants rather than a twofold administration of the same covenant merely to be intended. If reconciliation and salvation by Christ were to be obtained not only under the old covenant, but by virtue thereof, then it must be the same for substance with the new. But this is not so. For no reconciliation with God nor salvation could be obtained by virtue of the Old Covenant or the administration of it, as our apostle disputes at large. Though all believers were reconciled, justified, and saved by virtue of the promise while they were under the Old Covenant. And uh, further down, he says, this covenant thus made uh, with, we're talking about the New Covenant, this covenant thus made with these ends and promises, uh, sorry, he's talking about the Old Covenant here. Uh, This covenant, thus made with these ends and promises, did never save nor condemn any man eternally. All that lived under the administration of it did attain eternal life or perished forever, but not by virtue of this covenant as formally such. Therefore, I have showed in what sense the covenant of grace is called the new covenant. The greatest and utmost mercies that God ever intended to communicate unto the church and to bless it with all were enclosed in the new covenant nor does the efficacy of the mediation of Christ extend itself beyond the verge and compass thereof, for he is only the mediator and surety of this covenant. Mm. So that's, that's why the 17th century Baptist appealed to Owen. He said, yeah, that's, that's what we're talking about. That's, that's the same point we're making. Oh, by the way, Um, he's not a
0: Baptist. Yeah.
1: (laughs) He's not a Baptist, but he also doesn't hold the Westminster federalism yep. that's the point here yep. uh and so you know our, our friends at reform forum if you want to really engage with our view I, i'd love to see you wrestle with owen as deeply as you have wrestled with boss um mm. there's a lot there and he provides a lot of answers to the objections that you keep raising against baptist the answers are there they've been there uh we'd love to see some some dialogue and engagement with owen um as well as uh sam branahan's comments on Owen and his scholarship and his dissertation as well to to properly frame those things. Um, And then modern modern reform theologians have said the same thing. John Frame in his systematic theology, uh, pages 79 to 81, says, everyone who has ever been saved has been saved through the new covenant in Christ. The shedding of Jesus' blood, a datable historical event, is the substance of the new covenant, the covenant that purifies not only the flesh, but the conscience, the heart, Nevertheless, as we saw earlier, the efficacy of the new covenant, unlike that of previous covenants, extends to God's elect prior to Jesus' atonement. When believers in the Old Testament experienced circumcision of heart, or when they were Jews inwardly, they were partaking of the power of the new covenant. So that's our point, and that fits in perfectly well with our interpretation of Jeremiah 31, that it is referring to regeneration and election, Um, and it reaches back in time to save the elect in the Old Testament. Michael Horton, in uh, Rediscovering the Holy Spirit, page 152, says, There are clear passages indicating that the forgiveness of sins is unique to the New Covenant. Remember their sins no more, Jeremiah 31-34. Kuyper seems to confirm this conclusion. He argued that the energies of the Spirit at Pentecost worked retroactively in the lives of Old Testament saints. And then uh, we got a clip from, from Camden uh, from a different episode of Christ the Center. Um, this was a recent one on redemption accomplished and applied.
0: Yep. Um, I'll just point out real quick um, it's interesting those last two quotes you gave from frame and Horton, both of those are Presbyterians. And yeah. It seems We've... like they're, yeah, go ahead.
1: They're both Presbyterians and they have radically different views of covenant theology. Horton mm-hmm. is is inclined with subservient covenant theology views. Frame is very much not so. He's been spoken out against that view many times, very strongly. And yet they can both recognize that same yep. fundamental truth. It's inescapable if you just look at the logic of it.
0: And then it's just a matter of, um, do you take it to its logical conclusion or not?
3: Plenty to, to work out. It's a good test case. Pentecost. Pentecost... Is the point to play it, at,
1: uh, giving us at 1651?
3: Or Christ can work people can of God calling them out here. of Egypt to save any it's sin, not not or and after no. his no. earthly ministry. I'll start a little earlier. Uh, when we start to think about what the Lord was doing with the people of God, calling them out of Egypt, leading them through the wilderness, leading them unto the promised land, those are aspects of Historia Salutis. But here's a very important example, and I think this will give us plenty to to work out. It's a good test case. Pentecost. Pentecost is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, giving the Holy Spirit to the church. Now, we might be confused and say, well, how were people saved in the Old Testament? If the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost, recorded in Acts chapter 2, then they must not have had the Holy Spirit uh, beforehand. Well, that's a category mistake, because the, the Holy Spirit is required to save any sinner that we would be effectually called, regenerated, even before the working of Christ. Christ can work out of that finished work in the future because it's been decreed and, and ordained. So the Holy Spirit can be active, according to Ordo Salutis, even in advance of the Historia Salutis pouring out. Now, there's a... Okay.
1: I completely agree. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, you know, and that's, and that's, again, that's the conclusion that every Reformed theologian has to come to. I mean, that is almost exactly what John Ball said in the 17th century, 1630 uh, something. So John Ball's work on the covenant of grace, I think it's called the treatise on the covenant of grace was very influential on the Westminster confession. And he said basically the same thing. how, Um, he says the covenant of grace can either be considered as promised or established and promulgated in the new covenant. And so, uh, and then he talks about how old Testament saints can be saved. And he says the same thing. Well, because of the certainty of the thing to come, uh, because it was going to happen, uh, old Testament saints could receive an advance on it. So if you want to use a modern, modern analogy or context, you can talk about, uh, you know, like a payday loan. Um, Mm -hmm. you, You have a, you have a paycheck coming, Uh, In 10 days, it's guaranteed. If you got a contract, it's guaranteed. But you need the money now. You can go to a payday loan and they'll give you the money in advance. Not a perfect analogy. No analogy is because we're talking about divine things here. But um, similar principle, it was uh, Christ promised that he was going to come and pay this debt. Therefore, the Old Testament saints could take an advance on that future work of Christ and receive the benefit of it in their day. But... His work on the cross and his presenting himself as a sacrifice, as the priest in heaven, that's the new covenant, as the author of Hebrews explains. That's what makes it a better covenant. So if they are receiving the Holy Spirit uh, who is sent out at Pentecost, that's the new covenant. They're not receiving the Holy Spirit by virtue of the old covenant. They are not receiving uh, the atonement of Christ's blood by virtue of the old covenant. Christ was not a priest of the old covenant. He was not a Levitical priest. That's the whole point. Of the book of hebrews it's a different priestly order it's a different sacrifice they were not saved by the old covenant they were saved by the new covenant
0: and i'll point out too if um if the the new covenant was substantially the old of the mosaic and the Noahic, or whatever then christ would have to be the mediator of those covenants as well and that distinction is clearly made in hebrews eight um so i think that's important to point out
1: absolutely um yeah, I mean it, the the whole point is he is not from the Levitical order. Yep, because the priesthoods are different. Um, so we've got another quote from from Boothby here, uh, around thirty two fifty.
5: Cannot wrap my head around it, and I can't figure it out, and I need help from my <laughs> from uh, the the Federalist others. I, I've I've read many many uh, sixteen eighty nine Federalists. In many of their works, and I can't, I don't see anyone directly talking about 8 6 and what it means to them. I might read that because uh, 8 6 is saying why we believe it is an administration yeah, exactly. of the covenant of grace.
3: I mean, yeah, 8 is Except, talking about the, the mediation of Christ, but uh, 7 5 and 8 6 could almost be just combined into one little unit. They, they happen, there's a reason they're in the separate places, but they're so similar. That it, it is peculiar that you would retain one without the other. So go ahead and read it, please.
5: Yeah, to us, 7 5 and 8 6 are saying the same things. But uh, yeah, let me read it. 8 6 says, although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ till after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in all ages, successively from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices, wherein he, that is Christ, was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman, which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the beginning of the world, being yesterday and today the same and ever. Now the interesting the interesting thing about eight six and why we both have that in our covenant uh, in our confessions is uh, looking at that word communicated the virtue efficacy and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in and by those promises, types and sacrifices, those promises, types and sacrifices. We understand are aspects of the old covenant. And so it is then through that covenant that the, Virtue, efficacy, and benefits of Christ are communicated, and that word "communicated" is not like a, a conversation, a verbal conversation. That's not what. I'm, no,
3: they're I, means I, of grace. That's exactly what it means. They're means of grace.
5: Exactly, it, it means confer or communicated, like we often use uh, in the doctrine of God: communicable and incommunicable attributes. we're we're talking about something that can be communicated or conferred like a disease can be communicated to someone else or spread to someone else. We mean it in that sense. And that's the way the divine it. And I can't quite figure out the way the 1689 guys mean it, because if they mean it the same way we do, then they would have to say that it's the old covenant. Then is an administration of of grace. It's administered. All right. Thank you
4: for playing that. I thought, I
1: thought, laid it out pretty well. And I appreciate him asking uh, mm-hmm. for the explanation there uh, rather than just assuming we don't know what we're talking about or, or whatever, um, which yeah, it could be the case. Maybe we don't know what we're talking about, uh, maybe they uh, but uh, give us the benefit of the doubt first, maybe. Um, so he, he wants to know for, for their understanding, Westminster 7.5, 7.6 is saying the same thing as 8.6. So he wants to know, how can we reject 7576, but affirm Um, 8.6? I can just read it here real quick. Uh, Part of the reason is because 7.6 says, Under the gospel, when Christ the substance was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, which, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. And this is important here. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. So that last statement, there are not... Therefore, two covenants of grace different in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. It's what it's saying is the old covenant and the new covenant are the same covenant, uh, not two different covenants. That's what we disagree with. So that's why we don't affirm that 8.6 does not say that 8.6 says. um, Although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ till after his incarnation, Yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect in all ages, successively from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed, um, to be the seed which should bruise the serpent's head and lamb slain from the foundation of the world, being the same yesterday, today, and forever. So they're not saying the exact same thing. I, I understand how they see those as related, but they're not saying the same thing Um 7.56 uh, affirms that Old and New are the same covenant. 8.6 doesn't. So we reject 7.56, but not 8.6. Um, in, in Boothby's understanding, he, he uses shadowed down as equivalent to the substance conferred.
4: Mm-hmm. So he
1: reads 8.6 as, as the shadowing down. Uh, the animal sacrifices were the shadowing down of Christ's blood. And again, that's, I think that's going beyond Boss's triangle. I, I don't think A is Christ's blood. It's, it's the empty sanctuary there. And it's not Christ's blood shadowing down. Um, Christ's blood has to work temp- in, on a temporal level, horizontal level, retroactively. It, it doesn't come from this atemporal uh, point up in heaven. Um, we're going super long here, but... Uh, no, it's fine. <laughs> I'll try to, try to get through this as quick as I can. Just a side comment. I've got a post on the blog called um, Shadow and Substance. Equals substance accidents question mark. And I'll just note on 7.6 here in the Westminster Confessions, there's two instances of the word substance. Um, and I believe that they are uh equivocating there on those two. Uh the first instance in Christ is a substance of the shadows. Um, that's not the same thing as saying that the old and new are the same in substance. The the saying the old and new are the same in substance is an Aristotelian distinction between essence and accidents. And that's not the same thing as Paul's shadow um, substance. So you can read that blog if you want to dig into that more. But I think that's at the heart of this disagreement. I think it's an equivocation of of that word there um, that leaves a lot of problems. So the question is, you know, from our perspective, how can, as 8.6 says, how can uh, promises, types and sacrifices communicate the benefit of Christ? Their answer is, well, those are just modalities and hidden inside of them is, is the blood of Christ. So it's, it's inside of them. Um, R Scott Clark, I don't know if they would affirm his language here, but he has a blog post responding to us. And he says that, uh, you know, Christ was in with and under the animal sacrifices. Um, Hmm. so it's, it's somehow, you know, just it's in the animal sacrifices there. And that's how they think 8.6 is saying it communicates Christ's blood. Um, I I think that's possibly taking a step beyond what the language is intended. It's taking a step beyond what we intend the language to mean at the very least. Um, So how can promises, types and sacrifices communicate the benefits of Christ? 8.6 says by revealing and signifying Christ, which we would understand revealing and signifying Christ to the minds of people in the old Testament. Mm -hmm. So a question we have to, focus on here is what is the primary means of grace what would you guys say is the primary means of grace put you in the hot spot here <laughs> faith. what's that faith okay so how, how do we how is faith worked in us what is the means by which faith comes to us uh so some means of grace are like uh, lord's supper and baptism preaching uh,
2: yeah romans 10 preaching of the word preaching the word of god regularly
1: Yeah, so the word of God is the primary means of grace. Mm -hmm. Uh, Burkoff says in his Systematic Theology 618, sacraments are not absolutely necessary unto salvation. Many were actually saved without the use of sacraments. Think of believers before the time of Abraham. Uh, Robert Raymond in his systematic, I don't have the page reference here. He adds, uh, I would add that Paul expressly states that Abraham himself was justified by faith some years before he was circumcised. He later adds, the word does indeed take priority over the sacraments in that the word is essential to salvation while the sacraments are not. Uh, Calvin, in his Institutes, uh, Book 2, Chapter 10, Paragraph 7, says, The word of God has such an inherent efficacy that it quickens the souls of all whom he is pleased to favor with the communication of it. I refer to that special mode of communication by which the minds, the pious are both enlightened in the knowledge of God and in a manner linked to him, Adam, Abel, Noah, Abraham, and the other patriarchs having been united to God by this illumination of the word. I say there cannot be the least doubt. that entrance was given them into the immortal kingdom of God. And by the way, that's what we believe Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews eight is talking about in terms of, uh, they shall all know me. It's referring to that inward illumination of the Holy Spirit.
0: Mm. And the word of God being written on their hearts, essentially through his law. Right.
1: Yep. Yep. Uh, Charles Hodge says uh, in his Systematic Theology, Book 3, uh, Section 5, a fourth characteristic of the Reformed doctrine of the sacraments is that the grace or spiritual benefits received by believers in the use of the sacraments may be attained without their use. They are not necessary means of salvation men may be saved without them. Mm-hmm. Uh, William Cunningham, I think a 18th century Scottish Presbyterian said Protestants. I think this is in an essay called um, on sacraments called uh, Zwing, something about Zwingli. Uh, Protestants have been accustomed to maintain the great principle that the only thing on which the possession by men individually of the fundamental spiritual blessings of justification and sanctification is by God's arrangements made necessarily and invariably dependent is union to Jesus Christ and that the only thing on which union to Christ may be said to be dependent is faith in him so that it holds true absolutely and universally that wherever there is faith in Christ or union to him by faith, their pardon and holiness, all necessary spiritual blessings are communicated by God and received by men, even though they have never actually partaken in any sacrament or any outward ordinance, whatever. So the point here is I'm, we're just trying to set the baseline before we look at sacraments and, and mm-hmm. old covenant sacrifices, just what's the baseline level of salvation, new Testament or old Testament. It's the word of God. It's the preaching of the gospel and God illuminating the hearts to believe that doesn't depend upon any kind of outward ordinance, whatever. Um, so looking back at eight, six, how did promises communicate the blessings of Christ? Well, promises that Christ will come to reverse the curse communicate the benefits of his death and resurrection by preaching the word to men. That's propositional revelation. If we want to use a technical term there in the effectual call, God enlightens the minds of the elect in the old Testament to understand and believe those promises of Christ. And that's how they were saved. How was Abraham saved? Paul says that the gospel was preached to Abraham in the revelation that he would be the father of the Messiah. Uh, Galatians three, eight, says, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. That's a promise of Christ, a promise that Christ is going to come in the future and work salvation. How did Abraham respond? Galatians 6 says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's salvation in the Old Testament. That's what 8.6 is talking about. Um the second London Baptist confession adds a whole chapter. That's not in the Westminster confession. It was added in Savoy as well. And it's chapter 20 on, uh, on the gospel,
2: the grace and the extent thereof.
1: Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Gospel and grace, the and extent thereof, uh, paragraph one says the covenant of works being broken by sin and made unprofitable unto life. God was pleased to give forth the promise of Christ, the seed of the woman, "...as the means of calling the elect and begetting in them faith and repentance. In this promise, the gospel, as to the substance of it, was revealed, and is therein effectual for the conversion and salvation of sinners." Mm. And they reference Genesis 3.15 there. So that's our understanding of how the promise communicates the benefits of Christ, It reveals the gospel in propositional revelation. Uh, God effectually calls and enables, illumines the minds of Old Testament saints to understand and believe that promise and therefore be saved. So the next section is, well, how do types and sacrifices relate to that? Uh, Our understanding would be that types and sacrifices communicated the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection in the same way that promises did, just in a more indirect way. Types and sacrifices were word pictures that taught men about the promised Messiah, helping them to better understand and believe the gospel. So it's not that they were were vessels to sneak Christ's blood to them. It's that these were analogies. This was uh, an Mm -hmm. analogy, a word picture. It helped them understand the concepts of sin and atonement on an earthly, typical level. And the elect illumined by the spirit would draw the conclusion that, well, this is just on earth and this is temporary. There's got to be something greater going on for, for that heavenly um, uh, God's heavenly throne room. That's actually exactly how Voss explains it in uh, the teaching on the epistle of the Hebrews page 64 to 67. He, He, when he talks about the triangle, he doesn't say anything about old Testament saints, how they were saved. It's a very
0: generic the, section in in biblical theology. It doesn't go into much detail.
1: Um, but yeah, in the in the epistle to the Hebrews, the, when he's talking about the triangle, he's just talking about those verses and, and the relation of 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 the type and antitype and blah blah blah. In a different section, he talks about um, answering the question, "How can Old Testament saints be saved?" He's and it's a good section. So let me quote it here at length. Uh, The Old Testament law is dispensed with because of its weakness and unprofitableness. Its weakness is not merely a matter of degree, for in reality it accomplished nothing, since it made nothing perfect and did not lead to the goal. This is further implied in the quotation from Jeremiah 31, 31, quoted in Hebrews 8, 8 through 12. The fathers did not continue in the covenant made with them, but in the new Barit, the law would be put in their minds and written in their hearts, and the further promise is added, their sins I will remember no more. In both these respects, therefore, the Old Testament law is inefficacious. Hmm. In verse 7, the author goes on to say that God found fault with the first covenant, for otherwise there would have been no place found for a second. Um, And just as a side note here, note that this includes the ceremonial law. So uh, people like Meredith Klein will try to argue that, no, the law just refers to the Ten Commandments, and that part was was the works aspect of it they would say that the ceremonial law was separate. The ceremonial law was the covenant of grace and the rest of the mosaic law was, was the law or the mosaic, the Sinai covenant. Mm. Um, But that's the author of Hebrews is when he talks about the law, it's, he's talking about the whole mosaic covenant, but very prominently the ceremonial law. So these things are true. The ceremonial law. If you look at acts 13, 38 to 39, it's, it says, let it be known to you. Therefore brothers that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Hmm. Again and again and again and again, the New Testament says salvation and eternal forgiveness of sins was not possible by the old covenant. And they're not just emphasizing this differently. You know, really it was by the old covenant, but they're just, you know, highlighting the differences. No, they say over and over and over again, salvation was not, through the old covenant. It was not through the law of Moses. Forgiveness offered in Christ was not possible by the law of Moses. Um, Voss continues, but how could a true religion exist under such a system at all, an inefficacious Old Testament law? Several observations are in order. First, we may turn to the types of the Old Testament as something which should have led the people to something better. The author does not make much of this, however, uh, the types were primarily, excuse me, the types were primarily for the people, but objectively they were for the mind of God. Nowhere in the epistle has the author set himself really to solve the problem as stated above. Nor is it really solved in Paul's epistles. All right, so he doesn't view the triangle as solving that question. Hmm. Still, there was a, the, still there was a possibility of the significance of the well, a, unless I'm reading more into the statement than I should. It's just an aside, whatever. Um, Still, there was a possibility of the significance of the sacrificial system entering into the subjective mind of the Old Testament believers by the latter raising themselves to a higher state through the types, right? Important here, he's talking about the mind of Old Testament believers. We see an indication of the possibility first at 10.3. In the Old Testament sacrifices, there was a remembrance made of sin year by year. This was necessary since it was impossible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. This yearly practice was not intended merely for an objective purpose. It was a remembrance in the minds of the people. Because of this remembrance, the psalmist in Psalm 40 was led to speak concerning sacrifices, which would satisfy the will of God. It should be noted that that it was the psalmist who raises this consciousness, an inspired writer, not an ordinary individual believer under the old Testament. Still, he did write it with the result that higher consciousness later became the common property of old Testament believers. Note consciousness there actual act active mental thought it was the aid of revelation therefore that this higher consciousness was brought about the propositional revelation that we talked about earlier with regards to the promise likewise psalm 110 is quoted here we have the prophecy of a future priest after the order of melchizedek thus there was the consciousness of a higher order of priesthood than the levitical being possible and there was the prophecy that a future time such higher priesthood would become actual Psalm 95 is also quoted, which speaks of the rest of Canaan. The idea of rest is eschatological, looking forward to the true rest, which is to come in the future. The author of the epistle to Hebrews here again recognizes in one of the Old Testament Psalms, a certain higher consciousness on the part of the people of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, however, had more than these mere symbols and ceremonies that also contained direct promises, many of which were spiritual in content. And these promises were given repeatedly from age to age. Therefore, it was not necessary for the Old Testament believers to live exclusively on the basis of insight into the meaning of the types. Of these promises, the author of Hebrews speaks much. So Voss is saying the same thing. It was a a mental thinking through of the promise of Christ combined with this typical Old Covenant system that was ineffectual, uh, that could not eternally forgive their sins, thinking through that process by the aid of the Holy Spirit, enlightening their minds to understand the work of Christ to come. That's how they were saved. And that's how I understand uh, 8.6, how types and sacrifices signified Christ to come and therefore communicated his benefits to those people through their conscious mind, by the work of the Holy Spirit, to be get faith in them. It's not because his blood was hidden inside the animal's blood. It was the work of the Spirit, illuminating their minds to think through these things. So would you
0: say that... Um... The brothers in the reform forum episode maybe are reading a little bit too much into Voss's triangle because it almost seems like Voss is speaking more along the lines of what we would say
1: it would be pointing to. I it seems like it to me. I'm not a Voss scholar. Um, it it seems to me like they're building a bit too much onto it. They note that much of what they're saying is Klein building on top of Voss, and I think mm. Voss's uh, Klein's intrusion principle is not the same thing as the triangle or at least it's a it's a miss um, an inappropriate building yeah miss uh, an inappropriate building upon it um, hmm. because insofar as a is not realized eschatology mm-hmm. okay uh, and that that's that was klein's principle is the intrusion is realized eschatology coming back so if we want to use klein's terminology the new covenant is realized eschatology and if it's intruding into the old covenant then it's the new covenant intruding into the old covenant era, not something distinct from the new covenant. Right. Um, so Sam Renahan in his book says, uh, the blood of both goats did not eternally forgive sins, but it made eternal forgiveness of sins in Christ known. Animal blood was a way to satisfy the demands of the Mosaic covenant in order to remain in Canaan, but it could never, never satisfy the demands of the covenant of works in order to escape hell. In some, uh, this is me here, Old covenant, uh, old Testament sacrifices were word pictures teaching about the Christ who was to come. They were not Christ in animal form. Sprinkling the people with the blood of bulls was not the blood of Christ shadowing down on them. Um, so uh, we were able to affirm that Old Testament saints possessed the benefits of Christ, that they were united to Christ, that they had communion with God through Christ, But all of this was by virtue of the new covenant, not the old. The new covenant is union with Christ. It is our marriage union with Christ, our covenant legal and mystical union with God, with Christ our head. Uh, Old Testament saints had new covenant union with Christ. So in other words, the core of the intrusion principle was the new covenant. So that's our understanding Mm -hmm. of 8.6 and why we reject 7.56. Um try to wrap up this last section real quick here. Any comments before I, I dive into some of their other objections?
0: Um, just with regards to communication, I think it, again, it goes back to understanding the distinction between type and anti-type, because if you understand it is communicating a, a promise through types, and I, I know Sam has written a blog post on uh, 8.6 and, and what it, the communication means. Um, if you understand it as a promise being communicated through a type, you can see that distinction and and that it's pointing forward and that they are not really being saved by virtue of the covenant itself. And I, I think it just goes back to having a proper terminology um as we're having these discussions with our Presbyterian brother.
1: Yeah, and, and part of that is uh we we really do need to have active conversation, not yep. just Blog post here, blog post there, book here, book there, podcast here, podcast there. But face to face or virtual face to face conversations, because we use a lot of the same terminology, um, mm-hmm. especially the biblical terminology, but we don't always mean exactly the same thing by it, and so we can talk past each other. Yeah, these are really nuanced, fine differences here. Um, so it, it's really going to require conversation to to move move forward. Um, so they, they at this point, they raise a few different objections. I'll try to get through them quickly here. Uh, if you're still listening, I appreciate you guys' patience here. This is a long one. but uh, It's necessary.
0: It's a big topic. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is. I've been waiting to address this for a long time. So, <laughs> um, so Boothby said, so in light of this, um, it's not possible for the Mosaic Covenant to be a covenant of works. Uh, because he believes the triangle is uh, salvation shadowing down uh, through the old animal sacrifices. So therefore, it couldn't be a covenant of works. Um, But for all the reasons we just elaborated, we don't believe that at all. Uh, The copy is not the true form. right? The animal sacrifice is not the sacrifice of Christ. The old covenant is not the new covenant. The old covenant reveals the covenant of grace. But it is not itself the covenant of grace. So, in the way that we talked about, it reveals the gospel. It reveals the new covenant, but it itself is not the new new covenant. Um, and this is actually exactly how they look at the covenant of works and the Mosaic covenant. They would say that the Mosaic covenant is the covenant of grace, but it reveals the covenant of works in places like Leviticus eighteen five. Um, so w- we're working with the same concept, but flipping it in reverse, where the Mosaic Covenant is a typological covenant of works, but it reveals the gospel. That doesn't mean it is itself the gospel, uh, the covenant of grace. Uh, I believe Sam Ranahan has more comments on that point in his dissertation from Shadow to Substance. Um, and in this regard, Boothby mentions uh, Leviticus 18.5 and Galatians 3.12, 10.5. Uh, this is a crucial text here uh, for the difference between our 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 views here he points to uh cornelis venema uh for a good explanation there i do recommend that people read him uh he does helpfully explain the issues there and explain calvin's and the older uh, westminster view um in the sense that well paul is just talking about the bare naked law by itself um the problem is i'm trying to see if i have a quote there uh, no, he's talking about just a bare law. Um, the problem is that doesn't actually work out. And I'm just being very brief here. This would take a whole nother podcast episode. Um, I actually addressed this in detail in uh, uh, I just had a journal art, excuse me, journal article published in the Journal for Institute of Reformed Baptist Studies, 2020 edition, which was published uh, this last month. Uh, it's on Galatians. It's a really long review of T. David Gordon's book Promise Law Faith. So. Somebody wants to to understand our perspective better. There, they they can dig into that. But just briefly, the bare law interpretation of Galatians three um, three twelve there does not work because um, Leviticus eighteen five says the one who does them shall live by them.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: That's not a commandment. That's not bare law. To condition that that is a statement about the relationship of the one who does the law to a reward. Yep. It's a covenantal condition or term. Mm -hmm. It's not the bare law. Uh, John Murray, for example, recognized this. He said, Leviticus 18.5 does not appear in a context that deals with legal righteousness as opposed to that of faith. Leviticus 18.5 is in a context in which the claims of God upon his redeemed and covenant people are being asserted and urged upon Israel. It refers not to the life accruing from doing in a legalistic framework, but to the blessing attendant upon obedience in a redemptive and covenant relationship to god Um, again i can't go into detail but the point here is murray recognizes that's not just bare law that's a that's a principle a statement of a principle he wanted he, he was forced by logic to find a way to interpret that statement in such a way that it was consistent with the covenant of grace the ramification was he wound up rejecting the adamic covenant of works entirely Hmm. he didn't just change the name to an adamic administration he rejected very specifically the works principle he denied that leviticus 18 5 um, was referred to the covenant of works in in such that there was a works principle in the adamic covenant he rejected that Um, again i talked about in that article there's also a few posts on my blog about that that go into more detail but Murray was was a system, very systematic guy. He was in charge of revising the Westminster Standards for the OPC, and he actually added because of this. He added Leviticus eighteen five, um, to um, as well as Matthew nineteen seventeen, which is the Richard Young ruler text, um, as proof mm. text in Westminster nineteen point six, which talks about the reward that believers should expect through their obedience to the law. Wow. That was definitely not part (laughs) of the original scripture proofs in the Westminster Confession. And that's a huge problem. So I encourage uh, guys at Reform Forum to look very closely at how Murray handled that very thorny issue. Uh, And I think he took it to his logical conclusion and winds up denying the covenant works as a result, Mm. not just in name, but in principle. Um so then they talks about so the next section here is is uh they raise the objection of Hebrews 10:29 um um difficult passage ta- for sure It is it is the way they he explains it is very interesting though he says um uh, Boothby talks about uh this Hebrews 9 talking about the sprinkling of the blood of bulls And he interprets that as equivalent to the sprinkling of Christ's blood on the people of Israel. So that ratification ceremony in the Old Covenant was the sprinkling of Christ's blood on the Old Covenant people. And the New Testament, New Covenant equivalent of that is baptism. So in both instances, the blood of Christ is being sprinkled symbolically through animal sacrifices, symbolically through baptism. But in both, it's the blood of Christ being applied to the people Uh, And he says the effect that it had was outward sanctification or consecration, setting apart for holy use or worship. So he says that's what baptism does. It sets you apart to be part of the church, sets you apart for uh, consecrated outwardly for worship in the new covenant. And that's what the blood of bulls and goats did uh, in the inauguration of the old covenant. And it was actually Christ's blood being sprinkled on them. So it's the same thing. It's outward consecration. For worship of God, and he says that's what Hebrews ten twenty nine is talking about. Um, that's really problematic uh, because they're interpreting Jesus' blood through the lens of animal blood. They're ter- mm. interpreting they're interpreting Hebrews ten twenty nine and what it means to be sanctified by the blood of Christ they're interpreting what that means by looking at what the blood sprinkling on the people of the old covenant. They're, they're doing it backwards here. Um, The, uh, uh, the blood of Christ washes an individual to purify them for new, uh, new Testament worship. Uh, Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me skip that. Um, But that's, that's the important part is they're taking a concept of the old covenant. It says that it purified the flesh. It purified them outwardly, but not inwardly. And then they are interpreting the effect of Christ's blood through that such that um, Christ's blood can be applied to somebody without sanctifying their their conscience, Mm -hmm. without sanctifying them inwardly. Christ's blood can be applied to someone such that it only purifies their flesh. That's exactly contrary to what the book of Hebrews says. That's exactly contrary to the whole argument. That the blood of animals purified the flesh christ's blood does not do that it does mm-hmm. something better yep it purifies the conscience nowhere in the book of hebrews does it say that the blood of christ can be applied such that it only has an effect on the flesh on outward consecration uh, everywhere it specifically lays it out it's it says it saves it purifies the inner conscious and it saves eschatologically um, so again, we're, we would encourage people to look at Owen on this passage. Uh, Owen refers to uh, refers back to Hebrews 9.12, which says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. So what does that mean? Christ entered the holy of holies by his own blood. Um, Owen notes, The design of the apostle is only to declare by virtue of what he entered as a priest into the holy place. And this was by virtue of his own blood when it was shed, when he offered himself unto God. This was that which laid the foundation of and gave him right unto the administration of his priestly office in heaven. So Owen is, is making a similar sort of point regarding the word sanctified that Boothby is making. He's saying that it's referring in this context not to uh, inward salvation, but rather sanctifying, setting apart for holy use in the temple. Mm -hmm. Um, but based on 9.12, that's talking about Christ's sacrifice of himself, sanctifying or consecrating himself for his priestly service in the heavenly sanctuary. So the sprinkling of the people on the old covenant um, allowed them to enter and worship in the earthly sanctuary. Christ's blood, uh, just as the uh, Aaron and the priest, they were dedicated to their service with the blood of bulls, Christ was consecrated, dedicated for his priestly work by his own blood that allowed him to enter the heavenly sanctuary, based on Hebrews 9.12. And then, based on that, Owen says that's what 10.29 is actually referring to. He says, the second aggravation of the sin spoken of is its opposition to the office of Christ, especially his priestly office and the sacrifice that he offered thereby, called here the blood of the covenant. The last aggravation of this sin with respect unto the blood of Christ is uh, the nature, use, and efficacy of it. It is that wherewith he was sanctified. It is not real or internal sanctification that is here intended, but it is a separation and dedication unto God. That's exactly what Boothby said. In which sense the word is often used, and all the disputes concerning the total and final apostasy from the faith of them who had been really and internally sanctified from this place are altogether vain, though they may be said of a man in aggravation of his sin, which he professes concerning himself. But the difficulty of this text is concerning whom these words are spoken, for they may be referred unto the person that is guilty of the sin insisted on. He counts the blood of the covenant, wherewith he himself was sanctified an unholy thing. For as at the giving of the law or the establishing of the covenant at Sinai, the people being sprinkled with the blood of the beasts that were offered in sacrifice were sanctified or dedicated unto God in a peculiar manner, so those who by baptism and confession of faith in the church of Christ were separated from all others were peculiarly dedicated to God thereby. And therefore, in this case, uh, apost- apostates are said to deny the Lord that bought them or vindicated them from their slavery unto the law by his word and truth for a season, Second Peter two one. So he just summarized Boothby's interpretation very well. He says, but the design of the apostle In the context leads plainly to another application of these words. It is Christ himself that is spoken of, who was sanctified and dedicated unto God to be an eternal high priest by the blood of the covenant, which he offered unto God, as I have showed before. Hebrews 9.12. The priests of old were dedicated and sanctified unto their office by another and the sacrifices which he offered for them. They could not sanctify themselves. So were Aaron and his son sanctified by Moses antecedently unto their offering any sacrifice themselves. But no outward act of men or angels could unto this purpose pass on the son of God. He was to be the priest himself, the sacrificer himself, to dedicate, consecrate, and sanctify himself by his own sacrifice in concurrence with the actings of God, uh, the father in his suffering. Um that precious blood of Christ wherein or whereby he was sanctified and dedicated unto God as the eternal high priest of the church, this they esteemed an unholy thing. That is such as would have no such effect as, uh, as to consecrate him unto God in his office. So in short there, Owen is saying that uh, the, the translation there is uh, denying uh, the blood um Trampling underfoot the, the blood of the covenant by which he, Christ, was sanctified. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that is uh, a contextually much stronger interpretation than, than Boothby's. It makes sense of the apostle's argument. It doesn't flip his argument on its head and render uh, the blood of Christ equivalent to the work of the blood of bulls and goats In Hebrews 9, he's specifically contrasting them, not paralleling them. He's contrasting Mm -hmm. them, a a lesser and a greater. And to go back into 1029 and then say, oh, well, actually, it was just having the same effect as the blood of bulls and goats in the Old Covenant, Hebrews 9, to purify their flesh. And that's what it's talking about here in terms of the apostate. That does not fix the, the context of Hebrews at all, in my opinion.
0: Now what's interesting is uh, you have to, both of our confessions of Westminster and the 1689 talk about this in terms of interpreting scripture. We have to take the clearer passages to interpret the less clear. And we have the clearer that speak more clearly to the how Christ's blood functions uh, in throughout Hebrews 9 in particular. Uh, but they seem to leave that principle out when it comes to looking at how the blood of the covenant is
4: applied.
1: Yeah, I mean... W- we all have our systems and yep. systematic theology is, is an inescapable part of, of, of interpreting, doing exegesis um, and, and making texts interpret one another. So yeah, it, it, it's a constant, you know, they would say we're ignoring other stuff and they would point to their texts. And so it goes, it goes round and round, but yes, I do think that the explicit text in Hebrews about the efficacy of the blood of Christ um override what they think hebrews 10 29 says about a mixed membership in the covenant yeah um note real quickly here so uh they're interpreting jesus blood through the lens of animal blood like i mentioned the blood of christ washes an individual to purify them for new covenant worship is their interpretation without purifying their heart the question is is somebody um, qualified for new testament worship new covenant worship without a purified heart can't be can they can they be purified in the flesh and make them acceptable under new covenant terms of worship um in john four twenty, the woman at the well asks our fathers worshiped on this mountain but you say that in jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship worship Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, the earthly temple, earthly sanctuary, will you worship the father? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. This is a new covenant reality. Yes, that's always been the case eternally, eschatologically in the heavenly sanctuary. It's always required true faith. But under the old covenant, there was this earthly, typical analogy picture that allowed an earthly worship by the purification of the flesh without the purification of the heart. We can't take that and then draw it into the new covenant as if that typical worship is still valid. Nobody is uh, consecrated for New Covenant worship by the purification of the flesh,
0: and that goes back to covenant membership too in Hebrews eight, um, which I think conveniently these brothers do not discuss in depth. Uh, they don't they don't exegete Hebrews eight in depth. Yeah.
1: Um, Hebrews eight eight says, "Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the yep. flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to Him." It means he's not consecrated to him. Yep. Um, uh, they mentioned 1 Corinthians 7. Um, I've got a post on the blog about that. It's it's referring to the legitimacy of marriage union between a believer and an unbeliever and the resultant state of their offspring. Is it valid mm-hmm. for a Christian to be married to a non-Christian or is that marriage invalidated? So numerous Pato Baptists have acknowledged that interpretation, um, and uh chrysostom for example all the way that far back so uh, they can look at a blog if they want um but but this interpretation of 1029 diminishes the efficacy of the blood of christ it makes it equal in efficacy to the blood of bulls and goats and it teaches the blood mm. of christ can cover someone without purifying their heart that's exactly the opposite of what the book of hebrews is arguing uh just a couple of brief points here and i think we'll be done thank you guys so much for your patience mm-hmm. no no worries uh, no problem Uh, Hebrews 6 they mention it briefly again take a look at Owen his commentary on that passage but also he wrote a whole book on the nature and causes of apostasy and he opens that with a treatment of Hebrews 6 and he says there have been numerous debates and interpretations of to what exactly apostasy entails some say it's apostasy from the covenant he explicitly says that's not what this text says it does not none of these are um, referring to uh, benefits of the covenant of grace uh, these people who fall away are not members of the covenant of grace is what Owen says. So wrestle with what his explanation is there. Um, and then uh, they talked about just briefly the visible, invisible church distinction. Um, they interpret that as two sides of, of a covenant or an internal, external covenant or a vital informal formal covenant such that uh, you can be externally in the covenant of grace, and that's equivalent to the visible church. You can be internally in the covenant of grace, that's equivalent to the invisible church. That's not the only way, the only Reformed way to understand the visible-invisible church distinction. That is the most common and most prominent. It's not the only way. So um, John Murray, in fact, argued against that interpretation, and he argued instead that the visible-invisible church distinction is simply a matter of perspective. There's one church with one membership, and that's viewed infallibly from God's perspective, who knows the heart, and it's viewed fallibly from our perspective, where we can Mm -hmm. only go based on someone's profession. The implication there is that we may fallibly judge someone in charity to be a believer and to be part of the church, even though they are not. So we may admit them to membership in the local church, but we may be wrong in that Mm -hmm. judgment. And in that case, they're not actually part of the church, even though we treat them as such. Um, So read John Murray on that. And many other reformed theologians have argued the same thing. Charles Hodge argued it at length in the Princeton review. Um, uh, James Curry republished uh, Hodge's treatment there in Scotland in his day, in response to James Bannerman disagreeing with him. Um, the Dutch theologian Abrachel uh argues that at length, and he argues that's actually the view of the Belgic Confession. Uh, a 17th century reformed theologian, Jean Claude, um, argued that. He said that's the view of the uh Helvetic confessions. Uh James Usher argued it. Um Bavink has comments to similar effect in terms of the um Uh, it being a matter of perspective. And uh, J.I. Packer actually argues the same thing, and his comments on it made it into the Reformation Study Bible. Their comments on the invisible-visible church distinction talk about Mm. it as a matter of perspective. So um, I have very extensive quotes from all those people on the blog if people want to check it out, but that would be the Baptist understanding of the visible invisible church. Simply because we may have unregenerate members in our local church does not therefore mean unregenerate members are part of the new covenant. Correct. That does not, that's not a a logical conclusion. I understand that makes sense in in their system, but it does not follow unless you grant the, the preceding premise that the visible church is equivalent to the covenant of grace. We don't affirm that. Therefore we don't affirm the conclusion. Yep. Um, And then Jeremiah 31, all shall know the Lord. They say that refers to the consummation. It's, It's a future reality. The, the author of Hebrews quotes that and applies it to the present day mm-hmm. um, amen And it, it's not a future it's referring to the inward illumination of the Holy Spirit that we talked about. It's in that's how Jesus interprets it. If you actually look at John 6:45, he quotes uh, Hosea 13:10, which is a parallel to Jeremiah 31. If you look in your Bible if it has cross references, uh, ESV, on John 6, 45, where Jesus is talking about all the elect. Um, the cross reference there is Jeremiah 31. Mm. Okay. So dig into that a little bit, look at it, and read Owen on Hebrews eight eleven. 11. Um, he says, uh, I didn't quote him here, but, uh, but he says, there's no reason to extend this out to fulfillment in heaven. Uh, it's a present reality. And he explains in what sense does it mean uh, will not have any teachers, da 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 So he does a good job there. And just a brief note. Um, oddly, this is kind of similar to the way dispensationalists approach the uh, the throne of David, right? They read that in a very literal way, and they say, "Well, Jesus isn't sitting on the throne of David now, so therefore there must be a future fulfillment of that." And so these guys say, "Well, we still have teachers in the church today, so therefore that must be referring to a future fulfillment." And in both cases, we'd say, no, you're being overly literal in your interpretation, not understand the, the spiritual meaning of that. Christ reigns now on the throne of David in heaven and uh, not need anyone to teach you to know the Lord. That refers to the inward work of the Holy Spirit. First mm-hmm. uh, John two, the anointing of the Holy Spirit that teaches you all things. Um, that's what that's referring to. There's no reason to push it off into heaven. Uh, John 15, real quick, you can read it on my blog. There's, there's a post there about that. Um, Jesus is the true Israelite. Um, Israel is referred to throughout the Old Testament as the vine, as a vineyard. And uh, the Old Testament warns about a coming judgment upon that vineyard. Jesus comes. He says, I am the true vine. I am the true vineyard. I am the true Israelite. And judgment is coming upon Israel. If you want to be spared from that coming judgment, you must be found in me, the true vine. That's a typological issue going on there with Israel. It's not a statement about membership in the covenant of grace or membership in the church. And then finally, Romans 11, the olive tree. So Camden interprets interprets that um, as the covenant of grace, the church with Jesus as the root. That would necessarily follow if it was referring to the covenant of grace in the church. Jesus would be the root. In the text, Jesus is not the root. Look at commentaries from Murray and other people. Abraham and the patriarchs are the root of the olive tree. It's not referring to the covenant of grace. It's not referring to the church. It's referring to Israel that flows out of Abraham. First of all, it's the nation of Israel, Abraham's carnal offspring, all these natural branches. And then it's Christ who has come and he is the true offspring of Abraham through whom the eschatological promises come. And at such a point, the judgment comes similar to the vine, the vine story judgment comes. The natural branches are broken off. And the only way now to be in is to be in Christ, the true Israelite. Um, so it's talking about Israel in a typical and anti-typical sense. Um, okay, done. One hour, two hours. Good.
0: <laughs> no, Brandon, that's good. Um, I mean, th- this is a big topic. And like you said, it, there's so many nuances that are here that need to be flushed out and it does take time and, and, and length to uh, discuss it. So it's good. It's been very fruitful. Um, but we thank you for joining us today, Brandon. And, I really enjoyed the discussion. Um, I hope it's been beneficial to those listening. Um, Please check out uh, Brandon's site. Is it 1689federalism.org or .com? I can't remember.
1: Uh, .com. .com. So that's kind of a consolidation of various resources over the internet with videos and stuff like that. And then uh, I've got a blog contrast to .wordpress.com. And that's where, that's where I've got a lot of the stuff I referenced here is my own, my own writings are on that site.
0: Okay. And also check out his, uh, new article in the IRBS Theological Journal, uh, which came out last month. Uh, But thank you for joining us today, everyone. Uh, We hope you have a great Lord's Day tomorrow, and we'll see you next week.
1: God bless you all. See you. Thank
0: you.